word, grief. And like so many of the words in this recent unit where we're dealing with life's challenges, this is one that we don't really need to define because we are all unfortunately familiar not merely with the word, but we're all acquainted with the feeling of grief. It's a common word and a common experience for all of us. There's a great deal of physical pain and suffering in this world. We can think about it, anything from bumps and bruises to broken bones to lacerations to the, the pain involved in uh, childbirth or uh, gunshot wounds or severe burns. These are largely external forms of pain for the most part, physical pain primarily. But there's also pain and suffering of the mind and of the heart. And that's what we refer to as grief or sorrow. And grief is universal. The very first human beings, Adam and Eve, experienced grief when they discovered the lifeless body of their boy, Abel. And that grief was only compounded by the knowledge that his murderer was his brother, also their son, Cain. A few weeks ago, we talked about suffering, and we talked about Job, and Job certainly experienced grief. We all know that story, even if you weren't here for that lesson, and we could go down the line and see the various different ways that he was afflicted. We could multiply those scriptural examples, and we could all search out our own personal lives, too, because we've all experienced grief. So we could talk about this conceptually, but we actually had a lesson earlier this year, several months ago, where we talked about being burdened by grief, and so I don't want to cover that same ground again quite so soon. I was struck in our reading this week, those of you who continue to do the reading in our one-word book, I was struck by the last reading where the author talks about the end of grief, a time and a place where grief will be no more. It talked about our eternal home with God, where grief will cease. And in thinking about that, and in keeping with the idea of this unit of words over the last several weeks, it's all about life's challenges. Well, we really want to know how to get rid of those challenges, right? How to overcome those challenges. So I want us to think for just a few minutes together tonight about the idea of new creation and how it will renew and mend all hurts in this life, including grief. Or perhaps grief is a word that can encompass all of those hurts. That might be one way to think of it. It's interesting to note that Really, the most significant things that are said about the place our Lord is preparing for us are negative things. And by that, I don't mean that they're bad. I mean that they tell us what's not going to be there when it describes how things are going to be. And maybe that's logical. Brother Taylor actually touched on this in his prayer a moment ago, and it's not quoting him verbatim, but uh, paraphrasing what he said, we can only wonder at those things that are awaiting us there. 
And I think that's some of the idea here. You know, it's said, and there's some debate over whether this is true or not. I've read an article recently that suggests it is. But it's said that the Inuit, the Eskimos, they have something like 50 different words for snow. And that's because that's their common experience. You know, here we see snow so seldom, we know it is just one thing. But there it defines their life, and they're all different types of snow and ice. So with all that said, if you were going to take, imagine some isolated resident of the Arctic region, if you were going to take and try to describe to them a tropical place, well, you could hardly begin by trying to tell them what would be there. What concept would they even have of that? What would a palm tree mean to a man who'd never known anything but snow and ice? What would describing the the bright feathers of some of these brilliantly colored tropical birds mean to someone who'd only ever seen a seagull or a penguin? Or what would uh, trying to describe an elephant or a tiger mean to someone whose closest comparison might be, I, I don't know, a seal? You'd have to begin by describing what would not be there. You would say there is no snow, no ice, no polar bears. You can fill in the rest of the blanks, but really he could only wonder at the things that would be there. And in a way, in a sense, I think that's how Scripture describes eternity to us. It tells us that all these things that we're accustomed to, that we just take for granted as part of our experience, we can't really imagine life without them, those things simply won't be there. We won't experience them. We won't see their like ever again. So think about some of these negative descriptions of heaven, and they come both from our text that Tristan read a few moments ago in Revelation 22. And actually, you can find some other statements like this in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, the first several verses of it, which was that last reading in the one-word book this week. I I think in some sense we can sum it up with this one that we read, that's sort of the main idea at the beginning of chapter 22. Verse number 5, night will be no more, our text says. And the idea of night or darkness sort of sums up all of these negative things. I think about Paul when he's on that voyage to Rome and the big storm comes up and they're afraid, they don't know what's going to happen and it says that he prayed there, all of them actually, all prayed together just praying for day to come. Well, that's sort of what it feels like for us in this life sometimes, doesn't it? That we're surrounded by darkness, by doubt, uncertainty, all of these pressures making themselves felt upon us, and we're just praying to get through it, to survive for day to come. So if there is no night there, it's because a lot of the shadows that are cast by human life will have disappeared. There'll be no night there because there shall be no pain there. It says that back in the previous chapter, chapter 21 and verse number 4. It says there shall be no mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. The involuntary, the natural expression of people who are in intense pain is, oh God, 
We cry out to him. It's just our instinct. Pain makes people think of God. In that sense, pain may be a sort of involuntary minister for God. We talked about how our our pain, our suffering, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, can actually sometimes draw us closer to God. But who among us, when we have seen other people in pain, hasn't wished that we had some way to help them, some way to end that pain that they're going through? But of course, what we wish for can't really be reality in this life. We can't ever completely and totally get rid of people's pain. That's only going to be a reality in the new world, the new heavens, the new earth. There'll be no shadow to fall over us, no darkness, no pain. We won't have to cry out, oh God, because God will be there. We mentioned that in our text that was read a few moments ago. It says in chapter 22, verse number 4, that they will see his face. We won't have to cry out for God in our pain because there won't be pain. There won't be separation from God. He will be there. We'll see his face. There'll be no night there because there'll be no sorrow. Again, back to chapter 21. We mentioned that already, but you could see it particularly in the famous words, words that we sing. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, sorrow and pain, those ideas lie very close together. Sometimes sorrow is the result of pain, if we're thinking about physical pain here in particular. But There's a deeper pain than the pain of the body, as we hit on in our introduction. We're talking here about pain of the heart, and we could refer to that not only as sorrow, but but grief. Grief's at least one form of that sorrow if it doesn't encapsulate all of it. Think about Jesus. Have you ever considered how important it is that Jesus, as Isaiah said, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? A lot of these popular televangelists, these prosperity gospel preachers, they want to tell you that being a Christian is all about good things happening to you. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, and he's going to bless you without exception. And, of course, we know not only that Scripture doesn't actually teach that, but more than that, we know that that's contrary to our experience. Bad things happen to Christians. Bad things have always happened to God's people. Well, what do you think it would have meant if that's our experience on this earth and yet everything's always coming up roses for Jesus, if he never experienced any sort of turmoil or difficulty at all in his life? Would we have wanted to listen to him? Well, no, he wouldn't be able to identify with us. How in the world could we think that what the Hebrews writer says that he is just like us, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted in every way like we are yet without sin? Well, Jesus doesn't ever really experience the strains and the stresses of life that we do, and that just rings hollow. But when we see Jesus is that man of sorrows, when we see that he experiences grief, when we see that he is just like us, well, then we want to listen to him. When we see that he was a man of sorrows, to be found in fashion as a man 
he had to become that because sorrow, grief, is one of the deepest facets of human life. So when we see Jesus, for instance, weeping at the grave of Lazarus, then we realize he's experienced grief. He's felt that sorrow too. He's just like us. He can identify with our hurts. Then we want to listen to him. And actually, some of the most tender moments of Jesus' life involve others weeping in his presence and him drying the tears of those who wept. There was the woman who came and anointed his feet with her tears. There's Mary and Martha. You know, Jesus wasn't the only one crying at the grave of Lazarus. Mary and Martha were weeping there for their brother, too. There were the tears of Mary Magdalene at the tomb. You see, this is our common experience. Through all of creation rolls this song of sorrow, and we can hear it at all points throughout life. We hear that cry, that song in the child who's lost looking for his mother. We hear that cry in the man who's in the strength of years and the prime of his life sometimes. We hear it in the cry of the aged. No one is immune to this. And who among us hasn't wished that we had the power to wipe away the tears of people, the way that it says God will, when you see that child that's lost? Or when you see a mother weeping over a child that she's lost? Or when you see a man like Peter weeping over his sins, his transgressions? We can't ever permanently wipe those away in this world. But that's not the way it's going to be on the other side. God will wipe away all tears. What could be more beautiful than that? God shall wipe away all tears. There'll be no more sorrow, no more grief. Beyond that, back to our text in chapter 22, it says in verse number three that there will no longer be anything accursed that's the same thing as saying that there shall be no more sin. That's the curse on this world. In the beginning, when God created the world, it was good, right? That's what God said when he looked out and saw what he'd made. It was good. In fact, it was very good. But sin marred that creation. That blighted it. So the accursed thing is nothing but the curse of sin. But where can we escape that curse? Where in the world can we go where we don't find sin? Of course, there's nowhere we can go. It's everywhere. There's no way we can escape it. Sin is just as universal as human nature. It's as long-lasting as human history. We already alluded to the grief that Adam and Eve felt, that sin that Cain committed in the long ago, for instance. But the picture here, when we see that there shall no longer be any accursed thing, is that long reign of sin has ended. Sin is so common a fact in our present life that it's almost impossible for us to imagine what it's like without that curse. We're like that uh, Eskimo trying to explain to him what it's like in a world without snow and ice. We, we can't fathom anything like that. But wouldn't this be 
a wonderful world if there were no sin in it. I love the way that the prophets talk about how God will extend his love and his goodwill in that last day to all of creation. Just to give you one example, Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. With sin, with the curse no longer to mar creation, everything will be made new. And of course, ultimately, the greatest consequence of sin is is death. And we're told there in both of these passages that death will be no more. Or I think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes at the climax of that great chapter on resurrection, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, as Paul points out. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can say that here and now only in prospect, only in view of that victory that we know by faith the Lord Jesus has already won over sin and over death. But the point is there with God in eternity, we can see it with our eyes, whatever that means for those bodies that we'll have then. We can see for ourselves that death has had its long reign, but death shall be no more. Death will die. The pale horse and his rider are never going to ride again. There shall be no more night because there will be no more night of death and no more grief that death brings. I sometimes wonder what those who are already on the other side would say to us if they could give us a message. And I don't think that's going too far out on a limb because you think about Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. That rich man there wanted to send a message back to his brothers. He wanted Lazarus to go and tell them to repent before it was too late. Well, I'm certain that those who are already with God would have wonderful things to tell us. They could tell us something about those things we can only wonder at, only imagine now. To those who are in sorrow, they would tell us not to mourn as those who have no hope. To those who struggle with doubt, they bring us a message of certainty about the life to come. To those who are tempted, they would say, endure every loss. To those who are struggling with sin, they would tell them to repent before it was too late. To those who are grieving, They would bring comfort, a message that one day all grief will be ended. But to those who are apart from Christ, they would tell him to come to him before it's eternally night.
if you need to make changes in your life this evening. It's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. And free 